So um, last week, our family had a chance to get away for a little bit, and um, while the farm is relatively quiet, we headed down to Florida, where it's warmer. We had some really good time together, and um, it's been a second, but every time that we do, I'm reminded of some of the differences in our family, particularly in the methods and the amount that we pack. Do you guys have this differentiation in your family somehow, some way, right? This is how it goes in our family. Uh, about seven months ago, when we decided we were going to take this trip, Jana started packing. There's a suitcase laid out on the floor in our bedroom, and like as, as the moments like approach, right, she starts laying things in. Uh, I drive her crazy because a few years ago, I, I was going to I was going overseas by myself. Uh, I was leaving. I had like a ten o'clock flight or something like that. So at eight thirty, I wake up. I throw some things in a backpack. And I'm off to the airport, right? What I don't have with me, we live in a country where I can walk a block and buy it. If I forget something, I'm perfectly fine. I'm able to, to approach that scenario with patience, right? Uh, what she likes to do is bring the entire closet with us. And she's fine with this. I actually asked her last night, do you mind if I share our differences? She's like, no, I'm proud of this. Like literally... <laughs> I take pride in the amount that I can pack and take on vacation, right? And so she like has a lot of things in her life that she's not willing to do without. And and I have one, but I chose this week to try to do without it. And it's my pillow. It was, I'm just, okay. So like all of you are saying that's a massive mistake. And I understand that now. But before we go into the story, you have to understand that I'm, I'm trying desperately to transition pillows at the moment, right? What I'm about to tell you next is going to force you to lose all respect for me. <laughs> but I think that I've had the same pillow for over 15 years. I cannot move away from it. I cannot move away from it. And so I thought to myself, on this trip, I'm going to intentionally leave it behind so that it helps me transition to maybe another pillow. Maybe we'll stay somewhere and I'll find a pillow and I'll think to myself, this is it. And then I'll steal that pillow and I'll take it (laughs) home with me, right? I did not find that pillow. It was miserable sleep. And I came home to my 15-year-old pillow and I thought, I will never leave you again, (laughs) ever. I will put three pillowcases on you for the rest of my life to hide the nastiness that's underneath and I don't care, right? If you have a pillow you, wanna, you want to recommend, that's fine. I won't use it. <laughs> I, and it just got me thinking, like, what are some of the things that, that you, you will not do without? You refuse it. You know, maybe you go on a trip and you have these things. Maybe, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's your thing. You have to have it. Maybe you feel uh, really good. Like my boys, I, I don't know how this happened. Uh, but my boys, particularly Levi, go nowhere without four or five knives, right? Like he feels like he, he's totally vulnerable and without like lots of weapons, right? Maybe for you, it's, it's, it's the device, right? Like it's the thing that if you realize you pull out of your driveway and you've made it three or four miles, you're already late to work, but you realize you don't have it. You're turning around. I'm not going to live a day. I'm not going to go anywhere, much less go on a trip 
without this. I wonder, like, then I expanded that to what's not just something that we refuse to do or do without on a trip, but what's something that we refuse to do without in life? Maybe it's, it's of course, like we have people, right? Our family, we have uh, things that are very, very important to you. What if we narrowed it down to just one thing? I mean, would anything in this life, if they, they said, you can never have this thing again, would anything usurp the almighty gadget? What about this journey in life? What are the things that you can't live without? What is the absolute essential? Is it your family, your house, security in general, comfort, relationships? What about your faith journey? What could you not do without in your journey of faith? Would it be the songs that we sing? Maybe your morning devotionals, your inspirational Instagram posts, your church community, maybe your Bible. What's the, what's the most essential part of your life and your faith? What's the, the thing that you refuse to take another step without? In our, in our passage today, Moses and the people of Israel, Israel are offered everything that they've ever wanted. Essentially, freedom and a land that they're called their own. And God is going to send them there because of his promise, but he's going to withhold his presence from them. And Moses says, God, that's the one thing. That's the one thing in my life that I refuse to live without. I won't go one step without your presence. And it's a spot I think that will push on us all today is like, how do we view the presence of God? Read with me in Exodus chapter 33. Believe it or not, we're going to do about six verses. Because I think there's so much here in this first little section. So then the Lord spoke to Moses. So say then, the, the then comes after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He sees the people of Israel literally abandoning the covenant of God. And I, and I know Ed like spoke uh, last week, did an incredible job outlining the indifference that God is not indifferent to the way that we worship, to our sin, all of, all of those things. And I want you to understand that as Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai, I don't believe that his first reaction was just this incredible anger. I believe that as Moses came down off Mount Sinai, he gasped with deep sadness. And he sees this and the anger that comes through him is a righteous anger that he understands that the people have abandoned the covenant of God. And so as he comes down, he deals with them. He deals with their sin. God is moving. And then he says, and then the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is the then. So the aftermath, the people of Israel are beginning to even digest the gold that they have ingested. And then God speaks to Moses and he says, depart from here, move from here. You and the people who you've brought up from the land of Egypt. I love this. God, God is, is totally done with Israel at this point. And he says, uh, Moses, the people that you brought here to the land, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your descendants, I will give it. So God quotes his own promise here. 
And he says, I'm going to send an angel before you and I'll drive out the Canaanite and Amorite and Hittite and Presbyte and Hivite and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey for I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. So remember that the people were camped at Mount Sinai, for which many scholars would say probably around 10 months. They had been waiting for Moses for 40 days to come down. He comes down, he finds them betraying and breaking the covenant. And I think it's important that we remember that God made this conditional covenant with Israel. Remember this? In our past chapters, God would say, if you do this, then I will do this. It was a conditional covenant. We've talked about this. In scripture, we have conditional covenants and unconditional promises and covenants. This was conditional. If you do this, then I will do this, right? The promise to Abraham was unconditional. I'm going to send your people, your descendants to this promised land. And remember what Israel said in unison to the conditional covenant that God had set up. In Exodus chapter 24, verse three, then Moses came and recounted to the people all of the words that the Lord had in ordinances and all of the people answered in unison, one voice as if they were singing a song, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they didn't. They didn't. They brought out the golden calf. They danced around it. It was like this festival dedicated to false gods and idol worship. And they broke the covenant that God had set with them. And God was right to withhold his presence from them. Because God is who he is. And he makes an unconditional promise like he did to Abraham. He's going to fulfill it. Notice too that God doesn't just say that they can go. He's like, you know, just go into the land. Have fun. Have it. Whatever. God literally promises. He says, even though that I'm not going to go with you, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. And he will wipe out all of the enemies that would wipe you out. And so I will fulfill my promise to take you into this land safely. But I'm not going to be with you. Even in God's judgment, though, he withholds his presence because he's dedicated to his promise. Did you see the part where he says, if I go with you, I'm likely to destroy you. I think we might think of this as God's judgment, but actually it is his judgment and also just as much so his mercy. He says, if I'm around you and I'm constantly bombarded with the sin that you carry and refuse to turn from, you're an obstinate people. He says, it's a stiff-necked people. It literally references uh, a neck, almost like a horse who refuses to yield to the bridle and to the bit. You're a stiff-necked, obstinate people, and I will end up killing you. And so to be honest with my promise and to fulfill my promise to Abraham, I literally can't be around you because if I am, I will break my promise to Abraham. This is the, this is the significance of what the people have done. And look at what he says. He says this, he says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey for I will not be in your midst because you're an obstinate people that I might destroy you along the way. This shows us how dedicated God is to fulfilling his promises. This shows us and pushes us to believe and to know that God is so dedicated to fulfilling his promise to Abraham that he withholds himself 
from Israel here. And this is, I think, what we will be pushed on uh, as we learn to trust in God and remember his promises, that God will always keep his promises or he's not God. God will always creep, keep his promises or he is not God. He cannot be God and not fulfill his promises. He can't do it. So the question is for us, do we know his promises? Do we know the unconditional promises that were given in Scripture? There's many of them. Many that you should know and cling to. Here's a few of them. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's a promise. For with the heart of a person believes resulting in the righteousness, with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Matthew 11, the words of Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He casts a wide net. Anyone who is weary with sin and the burdens of life, he says this, and I will give you rest. It's a promise. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. It's a promise. Romans 8, 28, he says this, and we know that all things, uh, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's a promise. Now, a lot of scholars believe there's over 8,500 promises, 8,500 promises in scripture. Over 7,000 of those promises, uh, a lot of scholars would say are universal and unconditional. Think about this for a second. Over 7,000 promises in scripture come to us universally to all believers and unconditional. Think about this. And when Moses stands in the breach for the people, he claims the promises of God. That's what he does. That's how he prays. That's how he approaches this situation. God, you said you were going to take these people from Egypt to the promised land. That was a promise, God. You have to fulfill your promise. This is who you are. This is what you do. So he pushes God and reminds God, not as if God forgot, but he reminds God and prays the promises of God that he made to Abraham hundreds of years before. He says, God, you said you were going to do this. And when we know and pray the promises of God, we're not just fending the enemy off of, uh, with clever cliches. We're fending him off with the words that have power because God said them, not us. When he comes to us and tells us that we're insignificant, we remind him of the promises that God knows how many hairs are on my head. And then he hears the prayers that I pray. When the enemy tries to convince us that we're too sinful, like the song we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, we remind him that we've been giving the righteousness of God. And that's who we are. If you're going to have a chance in this world to make it through what culture throws at you or what the enemy throws at you, it will only be fighting through prayer and the promises of God. Otherwise, we're just praying these things that have no meaning. We're praying our hopes, right? But when we pray the promises of God, pray the hopes, the things that Scripture has pushed us to say, then we're always praying the will of God. And when we always pray the will of God, that's when Jesus says, when you ask in my name what I have already declared to be true, what I've always promised that will happen, I will do it, he says. So even though Moses and Israel are going to be recipients of God's promise to Abraham, they realize the weight 
of their sin. They realize the consequence of their actions, what they've done and the great price that they'll have to pay for it. And then they'll have everything that they ever wanted without, without the one thing that they ever needed, the presence of God. Presence of God. And in this moment, they realize they're going into this land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to have the land. They're going to be inhabitants and owners of this land. God is going to give it to them. He's going to wipe out their enemies before them. But they'll have to go without God. And notice their response. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments. They mourned with a deep sadness. The weird word here denotes this, this deep sorrow, the same sorrow that comes with a death, which is probably very appropriate. They mourned their sin and they mourned this great consequence of their sin, this separation from God. And I think in this moment, they saw their sin clearly. They weren't just sorry that Moses had caught them. They weren't just sorry that God had, had, had pushed them into this place where he's not with them anymore. They felt the consequence of that. And I think this is true, that when we see our sin the same way that God sees our sin, our only response is sorrow. When we see our sin the way that God sees our sin, our only response can be sorrow. We have to grieve it. Did you know these, these are the first words that John the Baptist would say and Christ would say often, the words that they would come in with their message, repent. Repent, because you see your sin and you feel the weight of it. And he says, turn from it. But I'll be honest, I think it, oftentimes we see, the way that we see our sin, the way that we view our sin is the reason we lack intimacy with God and experience the presence of God. Let me say that a different way. The reason why we lack intimacy with God and that we fail to experience the presence of God, I think oftentimes comes down to how we view and deal with our sin. I think often there's, there's three responses that we have. First, we minimalize it. We often do this by we look around us. We look at others and compare ourselves to them. We sound like the Pharisee that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 18 when he, the Pharisee stands up and he prays to himself, Scripture says. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even the tax collector. I thank you so much that I'm not like that. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. So we look at our sin and we think, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as those other people. And so what we do is we make this comparison. If you can imagine, I meant to grab a couple outside. Uh, so you'll just have to use your imagination. Imagine I had a, a couple of rocks, right, of different sizes, pebbles, 
a little bit larger rocks, a little bit larger rocks. And so what we do, uh, we, we would never like visualize this in this way or say these words, but what we do is we have our sin and we visualize these things or that we think about them as little pebbles that we can actually carry around. And it really makes no difference. It has no significance on who we are and what we're able to do. We put those in our pocket and that's fine. And we look at other people who have these boulders, these large sins, these big sins, and we think to ourselves, well, I'm really glad that I don't have to carry that around. I don't know if you felt like that ever. I'm really glad that I don't have to carry that crazy sin around. I'm really glad that I was never caught in that crazy thing. And we have our pocket full of pebbles. But when we think of sin like this on some kind of scale, we've misinterpreted what sin is. There isn't one sin that we're able to make atonement for for ourselves. Listen to this. There's not one sin that you are able to atone yourself. Not one. There are no small pebbles. Every sin is a, an attack on the character and the, dis, the discernment and the instructions of God. Every one. There isn't one sin that's small enough that you're able to do anything about. Every single sin isn't a pebble. It's a boulder that will crush you. So think about that visual and take out one of those pebbles that we often put in our pockets. And instead of imagining as it a pebble that you can place in your hand, imagine it as Mount Rushmore. And try to carry that. Try to bear the weight of that. Every single one will crush you. Every sin in our life, there's no pet sins, there's no pocket sins, there's no less sins, there's no greater sins. Every sin that has ever been done on the face of the earth in the history of humanity is enough to crush you. Every single sin carries the same weight of eternity. So Jesus said what's in our hearts is even enough to condemn us. So friends, our sin aren't little pebbles. There's some in this room right now that are buried underneath a pile of boulders. And the reason why the idea of intimacy with God and experiencing the presence of God is so incredibly far from you is because you are fooling yourself to think that you're carrying pebbles in your pocket and really you're buried under the weight of the boulders of sin. When we minimize our sin, what we're saying is that we don't need God. We can handle this ourselves. There's a second way that we tend to deal with our sin, and and I think that's by tapping out. It's when we see it correctly as absolutely crushing our relationship with God, but we leave it there. We walk away at that point, and we think to ourselves, and we see our history, we see our past, we see the things in our life, we feel the weight of those boulders in our life, and we tap out, and then we say, there's no way that God could ever forgive this, because I can't bear the weight of this sin, neither can he. 
And we elevate ourselves to a spot to say, maybe if I could even push it up just a little bit and overcome it, then he could take it. But this sin, this past, this history is too great. We know it's a boulder that crushes us and we lay underneath of it and allow the enemy to crush us day after day after day. And it doesn't matter how long ago it was, how many times we've asked Christ to forgive us of those things, we still feel the weight of that sin and it paralyzes us. We feel betrayed by ourselves. We can't imagine what God must feel about us, but I think we've gotten sin wrong here too. We believe that because we can't do anything about our sin, God can't either. And we assume that because we can't quite forget about the pain that it brought, that God must remember it also. But that's not true. He says he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, as far down as the depths of the ocean go. I think rightly there's a third way that we, a believer must deal with our sin. We must learn to deal with our sin. To view it correctly as the weight that we cannot bear, one that will crush us in a moment. And when we hear the call of Christ to give him that weight, we offer it up to him. With sorrow, that our weights don't crush us any longer, but they crushed him. Just visualize this a lot in my mind when I'm repenting and I try to imagine the scene when I'm buried and absolutely crushed under the weight and Christ who has no boulders of his own comes along and offers to carry mine. To be crushed for me to feel the separation of God for me. This is significant in the life of Christ. And as we even look at the cross, do you remember this moment? It goes back to here. When we abandon God and the covenant of God, he cannot be in our presence. So he withholds the presence of, of himself from the people of Israel. And they have to experience the pain and the consequence of not being allowed in the presence of God. Fast forward to the cross. We've all heard the words that Jesus speaks in that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he was experiencing the separation from God for us. He was bearing all of the weight of all the boulders of all of our sin for us. And as he does that, because God cannot be in the presence of sin, he had to turn his back away from his own son. And so in that moment, Christ's greatest pain came when he experienced the separation of God. But Christ promises that if we give him his, our sin, he gives us his righteousness. He takes the weight of my sin forever. And so if you're like me, and like the words that we sang just a minute ago, when Satan tempts me to despair, here's how that looks, right? We, we give Christ that weight. And someday, some night, sometime, something reminds you of it. For some reason, nothing reminds you of it. And you feel the weight of your sin. And Satan comes and drops that weight back on you again. Have you ever been there? And I've been there. You know what we get to do in that moment? We get to say, whoa, that's, that's not my weight. That's, 
that's not my weight. I'm not going to pick that up. I'm not going to let you hand that to me. That's not my weight. Christ took that weight. And if one could give me that weight back, it would be him. But he's promised to take it forever. And he's a God that must keep his promises. That's not my weight. This is why Christ speaks these words that would mimic these words that the people mourned. And that's why Christ in his Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are those who mourn. What comes next? They will be comforted. Those who mourn their sin will experience the freedom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, what? you will be satisfied. That hunger will be quenched. That thirst will be quenched. Why? Not because you've produced it, because I give it. This is what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through nine. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses. We were buried under the weight of our sin. Mount Rushmore. At the bottom. That's where we were, crushed under the boulders of our sin. And he says, in which you formerly walked and according to the course of this course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the ear, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh of the mind. We were children, nature, uh, nature, children of wrath, even as the rest But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were buried under Mount Rushmore, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. You've been raised up with him, not at the bottom of the mountain, but at the top of the mountain. It's seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. What Paul's saying is this. You didn't help lift that boulder. There's nothing that you did that can help lift that boulder. It's literally you crying out, God, I need you. Can I speak? I want to speak clear. I, I think there's some in this room today that need to deal with sin today. I think there's some in this room that are literally being crushed by the weight of sin. As Ed talked about last week, it's not, it's not wrestling with it. It's not even managing it. You're, that's what we're tr- attempting to do, but that's not what's being done. What's being done is we are being crushed by it. Some of us need to confess sin today to acknowledge the weight of it and beg Christ to finish his promise and to forgive it. I think before we can do that, before it's an easy task for him to forgive, we have to acknowledge it. 
I have to mourn it. I have to see the weight and the consequences of it, to understand it. Mourn your sin and then give it to Christ and look at it no longer. You know, we have the cafeteria open up after every service and sometimes you, you may need to go back and ask for prayer. It's also open for you to just go back and pray. You can simply go back and say, you know what, I, I just need to just spend some time praying. Would you just pray for me as I spend some time with the Lord? It could literally be going back there and saying, you know what, I don't even know what to pray really right now but I I know I'm not where I need to be. Would you just pray for me and with me as I seek the Lord and ask him to do something in my life? Listen, God put himself on the cross for your sin. Don't dismiss it. Don't minimalize it. And don't carry it. He offers to take that sin for you today. You can walk out of here with freedom. Think about this. You can walk out of here with freedom from sin, the weight of sin, and the consequences. Verse five, the Lord said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you're an obstinate people. Should I go up from for one moment, I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I, might, uh, that I might know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped their, themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. It's a really interesting part of the passage that we come to that some translations might simply say, so the Israel, uh, Israel stripped off their ornaments uh, at Mount Horeb, but it doesn't really reflect the language here that would be rendered onward. So in other words, the rest of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering, the Israelites dressed if they were in mourning. Think about this. For the rest of their journey, For 40 more years, the Israelites dressed as if they were in mourning. They did not merely take off their jewelry while they were at Mount Horeb, but they kept it off for the other 40 years. And what they had once taken off in a sinful action, think about this, they had once taken off their ornaments and jewelry to give to Aaron to form and fashion a golden calf. So they once took them off to form this idol, which was sin and a rebellion against God. Now they had to take off again to remind themselves of why they were in mourning because of the results of their sinful actions. Ezekiel 7 appears to echo this and he says this, from their beautiful ornament in which they took pride, they made their abominable images and their detestable things. Therefore, I will make it of unclean to them. So for 40 years, they carried around these ornaments, their jewelry that God had provided to them out of Egypt. They carried them around with them from place to place and could not wear them as a reminder that they had sinned against 
They mourn their sin. Verse 7, it gives us this glimpse into like what's happening at this moment. And and Moses tells us, uh, now Moses used to take the tent and and pitch it outside of the camp, a good distance from the camp. Now remember, we've been studying about the tabernacle, but it has not been built yet. Moses was getting ready to come down from Mount Sinai with the instructions for the tabernacle of all of those things, right? So the instructions and blueprints have been given, but has not been formed or fashioned yet. So in the in intermediate time, Moses would take a tent and put it outside of the camp, far from Israel, and that's where he would go to seek the Lord when when he was not up on the mountain with the Lord. And so he says this, and he would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about that when when Moses went to the tent, that all of the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And when Moses would enter the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand on the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all of the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent. All the people would rise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. We're going to talk about that next week. Moses returned to camp and a servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart. So there's two things that I think they're happening here with Joshua. One I believe that Joshua felt the presence of God and became absolutely dependent, and I'm going to use a word here that might be uncomfortable, and addicted to it. Joshua felt the presence of God at this tent, and he became dependent to the presence of God, and I think addicted to the presence of God. He couldn't pull himself away from. It wasn't something that he was able or willing to do. And I love the picture of this Asbury revival that was going on for days and days, people experiencing the presence of God in unique ways, refusing to leave that little child. I wonder if that could be said something about you, addicted and absolutely dependent on the presence of God. I mean, we've got plenty of things that we're addicted to, right? I mean, I do. I could list them for you. Jana and coffee. There's more. Mostly good things, but we're addicted to security, safety, comfort, ease, entertainment, materialism. Like we all have these addictions, but could it be said about you, that you are absolutely addicted to the presence of God. Reading scripture can be more than a to-do. Prayer can actually become joyful and life-giving. The presence of God can be incredibly fulfilling. But I think often we avoid the presence of God because we're scared of what we might hear. We're scared of what he might say. We're afraid of the judgments that he might make. But if you're scared of the presence of God, then you haven't experienced the presence of God. 
Notice how King David describes it as someone who has experienced the grace and mercy of God and felt the judgment of God as well. In Psalm 16, verse 11, he says, you will make known to me the way of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I believe Joshua absolutely became addicted to the presence of God and says, I need, I need more of God in my life. I, I can't walk away from and yet for, for many of us, I'll include myself, and there's, there's seasons where we go through this place where it's like the presence of God is here and like we go to it as if we're going to a thing, right? That we must do because that's what people that go to church and say they love Jesus do. But I wonder if we dealt with our sin properly, if the presence of God would be different dependent, addictive. I think Joshua was dependent on the presence of God, but I also believe that he wanted to protect the presence of God. Joshua was a warrior. We'll see that in chapters to come. And I think that he didn't leave the tent because he was protecting it as well. I think he didn't want another golden calf happening at the tent of meeting. And he didn't want to allow more sin to separate him or the people from the presence of God. What do you do to protect the presence of God in your life? What do you do to protect the presence of God in your life? I think one way that we protect the presence of God in our lives is to cling to Jesus. To keep our eyes fixed on the cross. Because when we see Christ as the payment for our sin, our response is to run into the presence of God. to trust the work that Christ has done for us, remembering that God had to send his son to bear our sins. So we grieve them and we let him bear the weight of our sin. We cling to Jesus. I love how the prophet Isaiah encapsulates this incredible exchange. Isaiah 53 he has a question. He says, who has believed our message and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we've held him in low esteem. And surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We totally missed it. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And a punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't even open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, he didn't even open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. Because of our sins, he was buried beneath Mount Rushmore. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. With the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor there was deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him with the weight of our sin, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see the offspring prolonged in his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by knowledge of my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He will bear the weight of your sin. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out of his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. Listen to this. And for he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors, for us. Christ willingly took our place separated from God, bearing the weight of our sin. Notice these just quick passages. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, For they themselves report as coming in of all kinds of receptions had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. It's Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Same letter, a few chapters later, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. At the conclusion of this, uh, sorry, I made another other than that. John 3, verse 36. For whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey uh, the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on.